You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. The idea of like failure porn. Like this book is not about like, hey, just go fail and fuck it. That's not what this is about. Like failure actually sucks before it rolls, right? You want to avoid it at all costs, anyhow. But if you're doing difficult things, if you're doing interesting things, if you're doing if you're a creative, if you're doing something that doesn't have you know some sort of linear blueprint to follow, failure will be a part of it. So you need to premeditatively plan on how you're gonna metabolize it, leverage it, and optimize it and learn from it. And that's what these rules are about. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, brought to you by Sound Talent Media and Evergreen Podcasts, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians, talk all about their lives and music while sharing a craft beer. I hope you had a killer weekend. I most certainly did. This Vox and Hops episode is presented by Heavy Montreal. Heavy Montreal are Montreal's premier metal promoter, and I'm very stoked to have teamed up with them to bring you Heavy Montreal Presents Vox and Hops Brutal Montreal 2023. That's right. It's back. Brutal Montreal is back for the third time. This year's event is happening on April 15th at M. Tellus and features performances by Clutch, Amigo the Devil, and Nate Bergman. I am beyond stoked to be working with Heavy Montreal to bring you another metal and beer festival. It's going to be awesome. Tickets are now available via the link in the description of this podcast. You should grab some before they're gone because I'm telling you these tickets are just disappearing. I'm beyond stoked to have Heavy Montreal behind the Vox and Hop metal podcast now before we jump into today's episode i'd just like to ask you to follow the vox and hops metal podcast on the podcast platform of your choice but more than that i would love for you to tell a friend about the podcast if there's someone in your life that is just a hustler that person that just always seems to have some new venture going on well you should let them know that the vox and hops metal podcast exists you can tell them that there are over 390 episodes where i sit down with some of the world's best musicians we talk all about their lives and music while sharing a craft beer if you would encourage one of your hustler friends to become a brand new Vox and Hopshead, that would be something that I would truly appreciate. Now, today on the podcast, I'm very stoked to be with Andrew Thorpe King, the author and the owner of Thorpe Records. Get ready, everyone. This is Vox and Hops episode number 391. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today I'm with Andrew Thorpe King, the author, uh, the label owner, the executive banker, uh, a man with many hats. He's he's written, you know, failure rules, which is what we're primarily here to speak about, because failing uh, sort of does rule. Uh, he's also written spy novels. He's he's done a lot of really really cool stuff. Uh, but he's also failed, which is <laughs> something that's cool, and he's he's open to talking about it. He's not only just open to talking about it. He like speaks about it publicly and wrote a book about it and has encouraged other people to to embrace their failures i think it's super fucking awesome uh, andrew how you doing matt i'm good man thanks for having me on man appreciate the uh, opportunity to chat talk about metal and failure and hardcore and whatever else you want to talk about i think it's amazing i think uh we talked a little bit before we, i pushed record here but a lot of people push failures under the rug it's like shameful to fail but I think it's amazing that you, you've, you've created this platform to showcase not only your failures, but other very successful people's failures as well. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, I mean, I think, again, like the genesis of the story, or not even again, uh, let's start out this way. The genesis of kind of the story of me running this book, the origin story of, of this book was essentially throughout my 20s and my 30s. I was struggling to marry money and meaning, right? I was ready, raising a young family, 
one income, wanted to find a way to marry my passions, but also maximize my income. Uh, because I think if you're deficient in either one of those areas, you're going to be off balance and you're going to you're going to have some issues. So it was, it was it was that, you know, the toggling of the two. And uh, throughout my 20s and 30s, I mean, I had an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, both by necessity and by nature. Necessity because I really didn't find that there was jobs that could pay me what I needed or wanted to support my family and live a big life. And also by nature, because I like to go off road. I like to go outside of the lines, live a nonlinear life. Uh, I'm a bit of a risk taker. I've grown to be less of a, uh, uh, a uh, you know, <laughs> A risk taker that takes un- unnecessary risk and more calculated, which is a lot. This book talks about that a lot, right? Talks That's about, maturity. That's maturity, right? <laughs> yeah, it talks about building scaffolding uh, and 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 structure around your goals so that you uh, mitigate min- mitigate the risk, even though we live in an unsafe world. Um, so, you know, I was taking a beach walk one day, and I was going through these twin failures. One was. Uh, I, I had gone through this business divorce that was quite dramatic with a partner uh, in, in an online lending company. We had one company set up uh, under a, a Delaware lending license and another one uh, in the country of Belize. So we had these kind of like, uh, you know, um, territorial diversity. Uh, but we ran into a lot of problems, both financially, regulatory, uh, te- technologically, all kinds of things. And I ended up resigning and it, uh, my core income had gone away. I had other income I had to reorganize. Um, so I'm taking this beach walk, thinking about how I'm going to move forward and reorganize my life. I also had a sense then that I was on the precipice of a marital divorce for a variety of reasons. And I was thinking about all these things I went through in my 20s and my 30s, whether it's, you know, going to be a bodybuilder or uh, starting my record label, Thorpe Records, which did, you know, bands like Madball, Blood for Blood, Sheer Terror, Slapshot, Ramallah, you know, or Sailor's Grave Records, which also did like U.S. Bombs, you know, the L.A. punk band with Dwayne Peters, uh, pro skateboarder singing. We did Roger Brent, The Disasters. We did Mad Sin from Europe, a fucking amazing psychobilly band. We did Booze and Glory, the Oi Band, The Business, the Oi Band, all kinds of shit, right? So that stuff, to, to being a banker, to, you know, writing a spy novel, and all this other stuff. And I'm thinking about, like, all the crazy shit I went through, This these wild kind of, like, vortexes of complexity, of volatility, of creativity, of danger, but also of excitement, all this shit. And I, I, I was thinking about the Winston Churchill quote, um, success is going from one failure to another without loss of enthusiasm. I'm listening to, like, a, a mix kind of, uh, you know, thing on the beach and listening to my, my, my iPod or whatever, and Motorhead, Ace of Spades. Chromags hard hard times. Those songs are striking me. John Joseph from the Chromags and Blood Clot ended up writing the forward to failure rules, so which is cool. awesome. He's kick-ass author, you know, the PMA effect. He's triathlete, he's whatever. Howdy Christian Dovotee, just a very complex uh, original guy, you know, right? But this all this was all like end of 2013. This was years ago. And I was just convicted, like, fuck, I need to write a book on the value of failure. Because it's it's underestimated as a tool to craft us into who we need to be to 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 have future success and and to stretch ourselves to become something new to integrate new ways of being into old ways of being to sometimes look at old ways of being and let them die like yeah. rule number one says failure fucking purifies let them die so that we can have new ways of being and it, it's not the idea of like failure porn like this book is not about like hey just go fail and fucking <laughs> do whatever that's not what this is about like. You know, failure actually sucks before it rolls, oh, yeah. right? You want to avoid it at all costs, anyhow. But if you're doing difficult things, if you're doing interesting things, if you're doing, if you're a creative, if you're doing something that doesn't have, you know, some sort of linear blueprint to follow, failure will be a part of it. So you need to premeditatively plan on how you're going to, you know, metabolize it, leverage it, and optimize it, and learn from it. 
And that's what these rules are about. As I started writing the book, it revealed kind of five general rules of failure, each of which collapsed with chapters underneath that had their own anchored lessons that rolled up to that failure rule. And, you know, as I layered my, as I wrote my stories in there, I then layered them in with support by a wide variety of case studies. I mean, everybody from like stoic author Ryan Holiday to Let Me Kill Mr. from Motorhead to comedian Rodney Dangerfield to James Altucher, the investor and podcaster and chess player, to Stephanie Land, who wrote The Maid and had that Netflix show, to Captain Tony Tarasino, who was, uh, you know, mayor of Key West, Florida, and was like, you know, a, a gun runner and, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, a little bit of a, a, <laughs> a womanizer, right? So all these wild case studies, but they all kind of buttressed and buoyed the lessons that rolled up into these rules. Uh, and it just kind of took its shape from draft to draft. First draft was shit, like Hemingway says, all first drafts are shit. So you got to get it out of you. Yeah. By the end, when I got it to the publisher and the editor, we worked on the editing for like a year and a half. I mean, I think it really took shape and I'm, I'm proud of what it is. And I think uh, it, it can really help a lot of entrepreneurs and creatives and kind of eccentrics and authentics, you know, and that's really who I wrote it for. I think it's good for just about anyone too, just to the concept of it, because when you fail, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to not fall into that self-loathing it's look what my life has been. And we live in such a volatile world where all we see of other people's lives are manicured perfection, which is what's showcased on people's social media. It's very rarely do people actually show what's actually happening on social media. Yeah. So I think it's, it's very, very interesting to showcase this to, to the world, not, not just the creatives. I understand that that was the primary pitch for it. Um, let's dig into the book a little bit later, but first, Vox and Hops is all about talking to my metal friends about their lives and music while sharing a craft beer. This is a little bit different of an episode, but I, I, I like it anyways, and I'm excited, and I'm very interested in the concept of the book, so I'm down for it. Uh, Andrew, what are you drinking on your side tonight? We just took a sip right there uh, that we will be sharing virtually. I, I appreciate the love of the craft beer. It's not my thing. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a spirits guy. So I got a uh, small batch Jefferson's bourbon here, bourbon and cigar pair. Well, I got a, my father cigar kind of down on the nub. Don't even have the band on, but it's delicious as hell. And uh, so yeah, bourbon and cigar. Hell yes. I love the sound of that. And I love the pairing of it. You're definitely always on brand. And I like that very much on my side. I am drinking a Sankam bottle. This is their nectar. It's a double New England IPA, which they smash with a bunch of uh, Sauvignon Blanc uh, grape must. And uh, it's so it's like a blend of grape must and uh, hops and stuff that goes into the double New England Sankam bottle. Uh, we're just voted a uh, Best Brewery from Quebec. I'm up here in Montreal, Quebec. Best Brewery in Quebec for two years in a row by myself, Beerism, and BIOS Podcast. I'm going to crack this, and I would love to hear about your very first beer. Do you remember the first beer that you ever had, Andrew? My first beer? I was late in the alcohol game, so I was actually a straight-edge hardcore kid until I was 27 years old. I never went through that, like, fucking get drunk and get crazy in high school or college thing. I was always a straight edge kid, you know, was always listening to, you know, it was just once I heard Minor Threat Youth of Today in like ninth grade, like I was married to the ex after being like a stoner in middle school, listening to like classic rock. But once I discovered like hardcore and punk rock and got into Minor Threat and Youth of Today and Slapshot, who I had the privilege of releasing a record for years later, uh, you know, that I was married to the ex. And it wasn't until I was like in my late 20s after having kids and stuff and maybe induced by a little failure, who knows? But I, I, I began to enjoy very gradually just alcohol paired with food, alcohol paired with cigars. It was wine with dinner, then it was whiskey with cigars. 
So I never had that like go crazy, get drunk phase. So literally since I was 27, I've barely missed a day of drinking at all. I'd like to say that I drink frequently, but not a lot. And that I get more out of alcohol than it gets out of me the way Churchill used to. So that's essentially the way it's been. I drink every fucking day, a couple of drinks, slow sipping, enjoying life. You know, don't get blasted. Eh, maybe once in a while I'll get real excited maybe when I'm seeing friends. But, you know, usually don't get uh, too drunk. But uh, my first beer, shit, probably a Guinness, you know, probably just a, just a, a Guinness for beer, a little Guinness in the winter. And, uh, you know, maybe by the pool, maybe I'll have a, a Corona, uh, you know, in, in the but honestly, I don't think it's, I think it's been years since I had a beer, man. I'm, I'm a straight, I'm a straight, bourbon, you know, whiskey, wine, you know, to where, to where I roll. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. Do you remember that decision of, of obviously being straight edge is, is such a lifestyle and you're part of a community. And, uh, I have spoken to a bunch of people that were straight edge and then we're no longer and then we're again uh for sober february which i do every year where i talk to artists about their sobriety and taking a break and if it's a life choice um do you remember that first guinness or that first decision to when you were like okay today's the day that i'm just not gonna do that because it's a long period of your life that you were straight edge i think it was just with family and there was some wine around and i just had a glass of wine and i was just like you know what this is delicious what am i missing out on control myself. I'm an adult. And I think part of my straight edge kind of like was a extreme reaction to being part of a friend group where I had a lot of friends falling into really bad drug habits when I was street kids and fucked up kids and lost a lot of friends to heroin. So it was like this extreme reaction. Like I got to be the one to set an example amongst my friends. Like there's a different way to live. And so it wasn't tempered by any sort of moderation or any sort of like reasonable middle ground of any sort of substance use. Right. So uh, I think it was that that's where I was from a straight edge standpoint. But as I got older, that wasn't really in play, right? You know, my, my friends group and people I hung out with, like, exactly. I wasn't going to tempt them to do heroin because I had a glass of whiskey, you know? Exactly. Like, it's just, but my mentality when I was young was kind of that militant, like, flawed or not, that's the way it was back then. And I'm probably the, not the exact opposite then, but I'm certainly a very different picture than I was back then, so. Well, cheers to that. Uh, this, uh, this second bottle poured out gorgeous hazy. Um, it smells amazing. It's smooth. It's nine, 9% and it's smooth as hell. I'd love to hear about the soundtrack of your youth. When you were growing up in your parents' or guardian's house, what music was playing when you were not in control of the radio? What music did your parents or guardians listen to? My parents didn't even fucking listen to music, man. They weren't really into the arts. They weren't into creative stuff, man. They probably listened to church music and organs or something. Really? I don't know. <laughs> and I'm to like Slayer and Danzig. Yeah, exactly. And Mur Murphy's Law and... You know, got my first Mad Ball seven inch when I was like fifteen. You know, and Ball Destruction, and I mean, New York hardcore. I really got into really early, uh, and then you know, even like and, and the metal stuff too. You know, um, my first job in the music industry was working as a wholesale, uh, you know, one of the wholesale department for Relapse Records. But uh, you know, as I was young, yeah, my parents they weren't into music even now. They don't they don't know much about you know music culture, especially alternative culture, or anything like that. They think I'm insane, but but they're okay with it. When you started bringing all that music into the house, what was their reaction to that? They were actually cool. I mean, I went through like this stage where like, I think my senior year of high school, I think I wore a Motorhead shirt and black jeans every single day. <laughs> and I actually, back then, I had long hair dyed jet black. Yes. My mom was like, dye my hair for me. And, like, Amazing. She understand? I was like, cool, whatever, whatever you're into. Yeah, they were fully supportive, even though they didn't understand. Yeah. Do you remember the very first live music experience he went to go see the very first show uh, you're asking great fucking questions you know that these are questions 
Oh yeah. First first show was 1989 Revival in Philadelphia. Fucking Bad Brains, oh, Leeway, shit. and Throttle. Yes. 1989. Lost my fucking mind. You know, late years later, I was actually met AJ from Leeway because he he played on the first breakdown record that I put out on Thorpe Records, and I was in the studio doing gang vocals with him. You know, but never would have thought that in 1989. And I go see Leeway with Bad Brains and this band Throttle. I don't even know who the fuck they are anymore, but that's who opened up. It was a great show, old venue back in Philly. Great question. Yeah, it was my first show. Were, were you ready, though? Were you ready? Because like a show is like a thing, right? I remember my first show, and I was pretty sheltered as a child, so I, was, I wasn't ready. I was a bit afraid, I would say, to be honest. <laughs> were you ready? Was the culture uh, immediately something that enthralled you, being a part of something so... Something that seems violent but isn't. Yeah, yeah. No, it totally enthralled me. I mean, going to the mosque for the first time was, like, amazing. I was in ninth grade. It was amazing. And what's cool is as a father now, right, my son is 21, but, like, three, four years ago, he's really into, like, the rap culture. But he's into, like, a lot of that SoundCloud rap and stuff that has a little bit of crossover where you see bands like Suicide Boys still having, like, Knocked Loose open up for them or Turnstile open up for them, right? And so I remember one night, it's like one in the morning, he's texting me pictures of his like his first fucking mosh pit. Like, I think it might have been Turnstile or Suicide Boys. I don't know what it was. And I'm like, most parents wouldn't understand what that moment means. They wouldn't understand <laughs> the first, like, you know, at bat. I understand this fucking moment. And I was like, boy, that's amazing. You know, so it was like, his mother can't relate to that. I can. That's awesome. You know? <laughs> so so you, you got a really cool thing that happened to you where you uh, got an internship at Relapse. You mentioned actual job but i called it like a paid internship okay. in music right because it was my first job and it was like i was at the gym one night and i was working this job as a a, a collections rat for ford credit hated the job had already started my label just like put my balls on the table maxed out my credit cards while i was unemployed freshly married to start Thorpe records and sign breakdown i was in the process of signing other bands even though it was in debt but i started to have some recurring revenue and i wanted to get in the music industry and some sort of like serendipitous kind of thing happened where I'm in the gym one night. I see this guy in a Snapcase shirt, and he, I just thought he was another meathead. I'm like, I don't even like Snapcase, but that's a hardcore band. So I go and start talking to him. Uh, ironically, years later, I ended up having the drummer of Snapcase as a client of mine in financial <laughs> West. But I'm talking to uh, this guy, Carl was his name. Uh, and I kind of a whole thing in the book about the Carl moment. This was like a Carl moment, you know, like a super connector that changed the trajectory of the calling journey, right? And within a few weeks, we went back and forth. I interviewed a few times, ended up getting a job running the wholesale department from this connection. And it was like, bam, all of a sudden I'm plugged into that infrastructure, to that world. Even though I was less of a metal guy, more of a hardcore punk guy, met some great folks there, Gordon Conrad, who ran Escape Artist Records, and you know Matt Jacobson, who started Relapse, and now has like this pizza empire on the on the West Coast. Yeah, he does, yeah. Metal pizza and shit. You yes, know? he does. And, and Drew, who uh, runs Translation Loss, just did the new All Out War record. All these different cool people ended up meeting uh, people at Lumberjack Distribution in Ohio, who I ended up working for next, moving to Ohio. They got purchased by Mordam. I'm doing the initial kind of like, uh, you know, retail campaigns for like All American Rejects, who I was there in the warehouse when the owner of Doghouse Records sister-in-law, who was 17, discovered the demo tape for All American Rejects. Now, I don't really like them, whatever. Pop stuff, but like, they, they got massive, like, yeah. That I got to witness, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, you know, helping with the early, the first Macedon EP on Rate Relapse. And then when I was Lumberjack, helping with like the early Bridge Nine stuff and Trust Kill stuff and getting that out into the market. Like, it was just a wildly exciting time. And I'm starting Thorpe Records then. And 
ended up signing, you know, whatever, Madball and Blood for Blood and Slapshot and Ramallah and Sheer Terror and all this cool stuff before I started Sailor's Grave. It was just a very exciting, creative time. So, yeah, it was like, to me, it was like, it was like a, a paid, you know, internship and you know, paid, you know, uh, education in the music industry just by. So when you let's back up even further, you loved music. You you loved the scene. You loved hardcore. Um, it didn't come from your parents. It came from the community. And then music was such a big part of you that you wanted to start your own label. What what is that decision? Take me back to that decision of of starting your own label because that's a huge commitment, especially back then. Now anyone can basically just start a label. It's not easy, but anyone can do it and just get it digital distribution and that's it you got a label yeah 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 no back then it was all it was all the physical piping exactly i like so i was like i I went and shadowed this guy (laughs) met from two damn hype records the only guy i knew a record label i was writing for music magazines rock pile and chord he owned chord magazine and chord recordings i mean he did some crazy stuff he did like the early um candiria he did their record Uh, he did you know a few other things and um so i went to go shadow met for free and Learn the contracts, get some contacts, get some ideas, see how he did stuff. He gave me a sub-distribution deal where he took a cut. And love Matt. He's great, great graffiti artist. Saw him the other night, had a drink with him. But, uh, you know, it, it was it was a little bit messy. You know what I mean? So I was learning from a very imperfect mentor, but it was a start. And uh, I just went out and drove to New York after contact and breakdown. They wanted to do a record, met with them, and uh, did a deal with them and just started a label. And like I said... You know, I was unemployed at the time, delivering pizzas, freshly married, maxed out my credit cards because I was just like in this failure space. And I write about in the book like that's when you're broke down, when things are in disarray, when you have that empty space. If you can step back and be an objective observer instead of an emotional participant, you can see the opportunity. And sometimes there's latent desires that are burning within you that have been suppressed. They find a way to come to the surface and you find a way to enact them and push them into the world. And that's exactly what happened. Very interesting. I think it's so damn interesting to, to to that objective stepping away. So hard when things are not going well to be objective and not be just so emotionally charged and making those those weird decisions, those spur of the moment decisions when if you had just waited hypothetically another day, something else would have happened. Right. And and if you think about the, the chaos and the collapse of certain failure vacuums, like they seem crazy at first because we worship stability to a fault in this culture and this not realizing that all change and all like amazing things usually come out of a little bit of chaos, productive chaos, if we, if we leverage it wisely. Right. And it's like, you know, that's what I've learned in my life. When change is thrusted upon me, I look at that chaos and I don't see it as a threat, although it could be if I handle it incorrectly. Right. Cause it's still a fucking force, but I look at it as an energy for me to try to like analyze and steer and, and, and plan to try to shape it into a new, a new way of being or a new path or a, a new set of multiple paths, right? You know, so it really just changed my perspective, um, which, you know, where I get failure rule number two, which is nothing is safe, which really comes from a Lemmy Kilmister quote, where, you know, he's talking about um, the terrorist attack on the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. And, you know, well, how did you feel about, it? would you have played if the if the authorities and the venue would have let you? And he's like, yeah, fuck yeah, nothing is safe. You know, and he kind of goes, you know, quote about how nothing is really safe and while safety is important we all want to feel safe when we make that our highest priority by default all the times no matter what instead of prudently analyzing that against competing values we miss out on living the life we're supposed to live and chasing the things 
that actually utilize our highest value, right? We miss out on going after the things that might burn inside us that we're otherwise afraid to go after. Doesn't mean we go after them recklessly. We're still going to balance them with some sort of plan to mitigate those 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 risks. But this 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 idea of being a safety file, which is a term I, I coined in the book, you know, I think really holds a lot of people back from living their fullest, largest life. Hmm. Um, writing. You mentioned you wrote for um, magazines early before you started the labels. Uh, what what I'm curious of you as a student when you were young. Was was school something that was pleasurable for you? Something that that you worked? Did you fit into the mold? Because I imagine you wouldn't, because you're just so multifaceted, and you, you seem to be all over the place, but yet super focused at the same time, which is cool. Because not you could be all over the place and be very d- disorganized, but you you don't seem to be like that. Um, what was school like? And and writing has writing always been a big part of your life? It always has. I mean, even like in high school, I used to make these. You know, well, the first thing is when I was like really younger, I did these little, you know, the zines, man. I was really into like BMX and skateboarding and punk rock culture. I used to do this zine called Shredder's Mag. And it was like interviewing with skateboarders and BMXers and, and punk bands in the Philly area. How, how old were you at that point? Oh, I was like 14, 15. Unbelievable. See, just, just the, the drive to have such a drive your whole life is amazing. Yeah. I used to get advertised from local shops and all that stuff. <laughs> of course you did. It was from my area. Who did his magazine styling scene? He was a professional freestyler. He was fucking awesome. He was sponsored by Schwinn. Now he was in Bad Luck 13 Ride Extravaganza, that band. He also a tattoo artist. But like I looked at him and he had the scene. And I just started doing it too. And it was just this culture. It was his local, you know, street skate punk culture, you know? So it was that. And then in high school, I would write almost these like Henry Rollins S type poetry books that I used to like pass around just for fun. And then in college, I would do that and actually do some spoken word gigs. And it wasn't years later that I picked up writing again and wrote my first spy novel, uh, which is like a strange detour, but I really got into that genre in a failure moment where in that gap, my art surfaced to the, few, the, to, to the, to the surface and I went after it and wrote, wrote a spy novel. Ended up blossoming in. I really got into these kind of business psychology. Um, you can call it self-help. I hate that term, but self-help, business psychology, inspiration, motivation type stuff. Uh, you know, reading like James Altucher or Rich Roll or, 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 you know, people like that. And from all those kind of influences, that's how failure rules came. Mm. Why, why do you think self-help has such a negative connotation to it? Or like life coach, it's another word that there's not shined upon in a bright light, let's say. Yeah, it's loaded, right? It's very loaded. I was actually talking to this guy who books for a bunch of podcasts on a call yesterday. And, and he kind of shot away from the term too. He's like, you know, get a lot of these self-help guys and they're like snake oil salesmen, you know, the promise of the world and here's how you become rich or here, here's how you become skinny. And he's like, I love your book. Cause it's, you're not saying that you're like saying <laughs> you're gonna fail, it's gonna fucking suck, but here's how you make it great. Right. And uh, you know, so that's why I don't want to really be attached to like this kind of faux like optimism. Right. Cause I'm optimistic, but I'm optimistic with a wide eyed view of life is unsafe and you're going to go through some shit, but here's how you can vote positively and move forward. What's interesting about the whole book and the, the way that it's built out with the rules it guides through, I, I, I read in another, I saw in an interview that at first you wanted to write your own autobiography. Is that true? And then as you were writing your stories, it was like, oh, it sort of seemed like there's more to, to this here and there's a lot of failure. But <laughs> right. Of course, it was like this self-indulgent, like, I'm just going to write about all the shit I've been through and all the stories. And I'm reading them like, that sounds like complaining. Let's find a lesson there. Okay, well, what was the flip side? How did that actually work out well? How did I actually solve that? 
And as I rewrote it, then I was like, ooh, there's these lessons to pluck out. Those lessons I then found in other people's stories, layered them in. And then there was these overarching rules, these five rules that kind of emerged in the structure. So just like over time, going back and going back, it was like the muse was calling me and I was listening, you know? It's, it's, a, it's a genius way to structure stuff to, to make it very digestible for the reader, which is um, important when you're writing a book, obviously. <laughs> yeah, a lot of writers don't do that. It's like it's, it's, it's all for them. And it doesn't. You have to hold the reader's hand and make it easy for them. They got to know what's in it for me. So as, as you go from draft to draft, you got to have that in your head. Pretend you're the say what's in it for me. And, you know, that, that's great that Thorpe had this life, but what do I care, right? You got to make it so. And I can relate it to him on a wider level. Uh, as we've been speaking the whole time, I've been imagining like going back to like prehistoric people for some reason. And they obviously failed a lot too. And imagining like them on a journey somewhere and then they take the wrong turn and then they end up in these horrible like valley bog situation and then some of the people would have been like this is it we made it to our place and they stay there and they're unhappy the rest of their lives and then there's other people that are like oh this sucks like this is a failure like let's say this is a failure and they decide to rethink what happened and take that path that they passed let's say a mile back and take that upper ridge which is a harder climb but they take that climb and then they end up in a much nicer place. And this goes on over and over again. And this is basically what life is. And it depends how your mindset is when you approach life, because you can be uncomfortable to be comfortable in the end. Beautifully put, right? I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I have a chapter in here. It's, you know, you know, being comfortable is underrated or overrated. It's overrated. Right? And uh, I give various examples of there. And a lot of it comes from this quote from Clint Eastwood in Trouble with the Curve, where you know, he's this old cantankerous, you know, uh, baseball scout. And I don't know if you ever saw the movie and uh, these kind of money ball style guys come in and they're doing all statistical and analytics to pick out their, uh, you know, the next recruit. And he's going by intuition, you know, whatever. And they want to put him out the pasture. And they want him to retire and they offer this retirement package. They're like, you know, you can be very comfortable with this. He's like, save it. Being comfortable is overrated, right? <laughs> that's just the truth, man. It is. It's not about money. It's not about being comfortable. But if all that shit went away, that's not what makes me happy. They're just accoutrements. You know what I mean? For me, what makes me happy is the drive. It's it's going into caverns of risk and find, finding pebbles of reward, you know, and doing that with like-minded people and having that, like, camaraderie. It's, it's, it's the chase, man. It's all about the chase and the journey, whatever you're going after. It's about the art. I mean, creation is its own reward first, whether it monetizes or not. You know, and it's just all about that. You know what I mean? Everything else is just a byproduct. It's just fucking window dressing. Very cool. I like that very much. And I, I do agree with that. The chase is, is amazing. And going into that cavern with a bunch of people, like-minded people is very cool. If you, if you can like team up with people that are like you in that same mindset and just finding that one precious stone after digging through piles and piles of garbage and finding that reward and working towards something that that is this idea this creative idea that you've come up with very rewarding and i live like that as well 100 percent um you also had a soundtrack you wrote this book to a soundtrack this is totally something that i would have done if i had written a book um listing and creating and showcasing a playlist of amazing um songs that you listen to pma is the word that comes to mind uh, the acronym that comes to mind uh, about this playlist to talk to us a little bit about having a playlist that goes hand in hand with failure rules yeah so i mean i actually write about the playlist at the end of the book i talk about why this why certain songs were chosen 
how they spoke to me through, through certain hard times or failures, like literally were the songs that buoyed me and gave me strength, and or they were just songs I listened to while I was writing and they were influencing me. And to me, it's just like, you know, music is just always there. That friend is always there. That that power source is always there for me to plug into. It's always a soundtrack to my life. You know, whether I'm like in the gym and I need to listen to, you know, like terror to get through my workout or whether I'm about to do a, a uh, presentation to 100 banking executives and I got to <laughs> listen to uh, you know, Doc Martin Stomp by Madball beforehand to just get my cadence going and fucking overpower them, right? Whatever it is, music is always there. If it's a failure, you know, music has always been there to lift me out of those failures. So some of the bands, so we got like songs by like, you know, Shine by Rollins Band, you got Born Strong by Madballs on it. You know, obviously Ace of Spades, Motorhead, Hate Breed, Divinity of Purpose. Oh, that yes. one is really meaningful to me. I actually write about that in the book. Um, so, like, you know, I'll read right from the book here. There's there's a chapter called uh, Calling Alignment and the Divinity of Purpose, you know, kind of from that song, The Divinity of Purpose by Hate Breed. You know, and Jamie sings, I, I felt the pain of discipline was less than that of regret. Lifted one foot from the grave when the purpose showed its face. And when the skies crashed down upon me, I looked for someone by my side. You were there when no one else was. You showed me what's born doesn't always die, the divinity of purpose. And that song, there was a time where, like, I was going through this divorce. I had this business divorce. All of a sudden, I found myself living in a hotel room. I had no office to go to by day, no home to go to by night, separated from my kids. What am I going to do? I could drown in alcoholism. I could drown in misery. Instead, I found the divinity of purpose. That song buoyed me. I hatched five ideas that I, that I, you know, catalyzed in parallel, you know, that all led to different, you know, fruit at different timelines. One was I started a consulting business in the online lending space, which ended up being a lead generation company, which ended up being on parity and income to my banking job. I got a job in the, in the fintech space in banking, uh, in, in, you know, for an online tech company serving like the fintech space at like the Chimes, the Venmos of the world. Been there 10 years, been an amazing career. Also, that's when I started really writing, finishing my first spy novel. It's when I reinvested the labels, put out records by like the Creep Show from Canada, the Booze and Glory, uh, God Gallows. And it's also when I really started writing Failure Rules. So there's like all these things were birthed out of this idea of the divinity of purpose from that hate breed song in this time of fucking failure because I chose to invoke that as opposed to invoke sort of like misery or self pity. Hell or yes, no. Whatever, you know? You, you can have maybe, maybe like. One night of self pity, but then you got to wake up and do something about it. I didn't, one night's good. I think one night is acceptable. When you wake up the next morning, you got to do something. And the next day, you wake up and you find <laughs> the Tony Robbins of hardcore and Jamie Avery as you go. <laughs> uh, shout out to Jamie, of course. Uh, there would be no Vox and Hops without the Jasta show. So, is that right? nice. That's 100%. 100%. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops? Heads? I just want to take a little moment about Cryptopsy's up coming tours that's right i'm talking about the scream of perseverance tour and our headliner dates that coincide with that tour called as summer burns the scream of perseverance tour is kicking off at the end of may and runs all the way until the end of june we are supporting the mighty death to all we are going all over the united states and we are hitting some of canada so excited to be honoring the legendary music of death alongside amazing musicians that performed on these albums. Even more stoked to be doing some headliner dates in some cities that I've actually never played in. If you are planning to come to any of these shows, you should definitely grab your tickets by going to voxandhops.com slash summer 
and you will be able to grab all of your tickets there. That's voxandhops.com slash summer. Do it, people. Come hang out with me. Enjoy life, metal, and craft beer in your hometown. Come to a show. We're going to have a great time. Now, enough about all of that. Let's get back to the episode. I do not know anything about this, and I imagine that I might, you know, because I, I work, I'm a death metal singer, I work in early childhood education, so there's like a weird thing right there. So so you are probably the most hardcore, most metal uh, people person in finance, but have you stumbled across other people in the finance scene that are also into hardcore and metal? No, I mean, you know, mainstream shit a little bit, but nothing, nothing like this. No, but, well, you know, actually, that's not true. There's a guy who worked for me. But more into the emo stuff. He's really into Thursday and stuff like that. So he knows like who Madball and Terror is. And he worked for me uh, at one point. And uh, so, yeah, maybe that. That's about one. But, you know, otherwise, like covering up my tattoos mostly. And I don't talk about it, you know, except for my one, my, my old boss there who I actually met at Cigar Lounge. So he knows me, you know, unvarnished. So he's about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, we go out and have our meetings in the parking lot smoking a cigar, you know, mm-hmm. but it what why do you think that is why are there not enough more metal people or hardcore people in finance what 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 is the divide there i don't know man but after watching billions the show by brian koppelman man you know where uh you know what's his name um bobby axelrod's wearing the motorhead shirt you know in the one scene and ace of spades is going i think it's about high time that they start to learn to couple metal and hardcore with the aggressiveness of finance right 100 <laughs> environment Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. So it takes ambiguity, it takes aggressiveness to deal with that type of environment every day. How do you do that without hardcore and metal coursing through your veins? I don't know how. I, I don't know what they do. I, I am so far from that world, so I am, I am not versed in it enough. Um, you are probably the perfect person for this next question. I have a new segment called Fight the Hops where I ask guests. Um, what are they working on? Small-term goals, something about yourself that you're trying to improve upon right now. Uh, it's a brand new year. People do resolutions. I don't know if you did. Uh, what is something that is an obtainable goal that you're working upon right now? So a quote comes to mind. I forget who actually, uh, you know, where the quote originates, but it's a quote that's really stuck with me. And it's kind of kind of my theme in the new year, which is um, the devil is in the details and so is the salvation, right? So, you know, when things get really you know, murky in terms of granularity, in terms of things you need to accomplish. And you think it's going to be easy and it's not. Next thing you know, you got to dive in, you got to learn this new skill, you got to learn that new skill. I run into this in my day job. I'm running into this as I'm building kind of out the, building out the failure verse, which is the failure rules universe. We're going to do a podcast at some voice. I got a merchandise company, Solnify Supply Company. I got the book, speaking, all the stuff that I want to do. It's a multi-year plan, but the devil is in the details. And so is the salvation. So it's like, to me, that is like my driving quote of the year to just remember that when I get frustrated or I feel like I'm getting stuck or feel like things are like going sideways. It's just remember, remember, step back. The details are important. That's where the salvation is. Looks like the devil's there now, and that might be true too, but ultimately that's where the salvation is. So it's paradoxes like that, just like after it sucks, failure rules. Another paradox, right? So it's about these paradoxes. It's true. It's true. And the devil is in the details because it's super fucking annoying to get everything right. And my wife is the producer of the podcast, and she is that voice, and she's typically always right, and I know she is, but I do the work, and but I give her shit anyways because it's annoying, and then I tell her she was right. But uh, yes, a hundred percent salvation. You got to put the work in. Dude, you got it down. I mean, that's that's it right there. You just <laughs> summed up like you're here to write the self help book on marriage now. We'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
collabs. I love making collabs. I'm not drinking one tonight, but I've released uh, over 60 beer collabs in the past three years with the podcast. Uh, I love putting my logo on stuff. I love doing it for Cryptopsy. I do it for the podcast. Uh, if you could make the perfect collab for Andrew Thorpe King, what would that be? I imagine it's a cigar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Right. So I have this uh, my, my merchandise company, Soul on Fire Supply Company which, uh, you know, maps to one of the chapters in the book called, you know, A Soul on Fire is a Soul Alive, where I kind of talk about Jack Kerouac and some others and living a life that is hot, you know, better be, you know, hot or cold, lukewarm, I spit you the fuck out, right? So I would say I'd do a cigar, just Soul on Fire cigar, right? And uh, I would probably have the logo on there and, you know, make sure it's a really good blend. I probably want to hire my friend Rick Rodriguez from West Tampa Tobacco Company, he used to be a master blender for CAO. Uh, he did the Flathead series, the Amazon Basin. Um, he, he did a quote in the book. I also write about him, and we're, we're friends. I'd probably want to hire him to do the blend or, or somebody like him, you know. Uh, but, yeah, that would be a dream collab. It's, it's, it's not actually going to happen, but that would be a dream collab. Who knows what? If you put it into the universe, you never know what's going to happen. So I have one final question. Uh, it probably doesn't happen to you very often because you started drinking when you were 27, around your 27, uh, and you, you've learned to, to drink with moderation. But you said earlier that every once in a while you get a little bit out of control if you're having fun with your friends. Uh, what is your hangover cure? Ooh, oh, yeah. Jocko Greens, Jocko Willings, uh, you know, his version of Athletic Greens. Have that every fucking morning, followed by li Liquid IV. Uh, then I have some Black Death Wish coffee, and I have a protein. So my morning is just pills and powders, lots of liquids and lots of pills every morning. So I got like a whole bunch of supplements and a bunch of pill supplements. It's just all, you know, that's my medicinal boost for the morning, every single morning. Oh, yes. Death wish, co Death wish coffee fucking rules. I, uh, yes, it does. I, echo, yes, it does. I echo on that one. Uh, Andrew, this was fucking amazing. Uh, you're truly inspirational. Um I want to talk more. I want to talk to you again, like in a few years, because I know you're going to be doing something different, completely different. And I think that's super exciting. Um, everyone go check out Failure Rules. It came out in September 2022. Um, I'll put the link to it in the description of this podcast. Uh, grab it. It's it's riveting. And, uh, you know, there's no solutions in it, but there are a bunch of suggestions of how you can tackle what failing means and how you can make it into something actually positive, because that's what Andrew did. Massive cheers to you, Andrew. Cheers, my man. Have a great night. Thanks for having me, Matt. Massive cheers. And uh, do a cryptopsy too, man. Great stuff, man. Thank you so much. Cheers. Hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. Man, this was an awesome conversation, an eye-opening conversation. Just the amount of times that I have thought back to the subjects that we broached, we just hit the tip of the iceberg throughout this conversation, and I have been thinking about it a lot recently. Uh, the fears of failing and not taking that chance because what if this doesn't go well is something that I deal with a lot. I do a lot of projects. I do a lot of things and I take a lot of chances, but there are moments that I'm afraid to take a leap because what if it fails? And there are some projects that have happened for Vox and Hops that are not necessarily the biggest successes. You can call them failures, maybe, and that's okay. Andrew made me feel okay about those things. It's not what you reap, it's what you learn, and I think that's amazing. Everyone, please go check out Failure Rules. I have put the link to purchase it in the description of this podcast. It's an awesome, awesome read, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Massive cheers to Andrew for hanging out with me. I cannot wait till next time. As I just mentioned, 
and uh, I'm sure we will be having another chat soon, and you will be doing something else extremely interesting. Now, if you enjoyed this Vox and Hops episode, you should sign up to the Vox and Hops Metal Podcasts mailing list. You can do that on my website, voxandhops.com. That's V-O-X-A-N-D-H-O-P-S.com. And when you do that, you shall receive one email a week that will contain all of the details of everything that has happened recently in the world of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast. You'll get to see which episodes I dropped recently. You'll get to see which episodes I have coming up. You will also get to hear about any projects I have in the works before I announce them to the public. And trust me, I always got a lot of stuff going on you will also get to see which albums the vox and hops album review crew have reviewed recently and you will also get to see which albums jerry monk vox and hops's metal architect has added to the brutal awakenings playlist trust me people there's always a lot of things going on in the world of the vox and hops metal podcast and i hate when you miss a single thing so please do me a favor sign up to the mailing list the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast is brought to you by Sound Talent Media and Evergreen Podcasts. I hope you have a killer rest of the week. I will be back next week on February 7th with the very first episode of Vox and Hops' Sober February 2023, presented by Pitch Black North. That's right, people. Pitch Black North are presenting Sober February yet again this year. They're simply the best, and I am just so stoked that they're supporting Sober February for a second year in the row. So I hope you have a killer, killer weekend. I'm back next Tuesday on February 7th with Wednesday 13th, the first guest of Sober February 2023. But until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hops hits. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week, I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.